You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. To Twibley, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, all he is is dust in the wind, dude. It's Jeff McLodge, huge. <laughs> Be excellent to each other. Yes. <laughs> How's it going, man? I'm I'm fine. How are you? Nah, I'm all right. I'm glad it's spring-ish. <laughs> So I got that going for me. It's right on that cusp where it's like, I want to go out and ride my bicycle, but I'm also a huge baby where I don't go out and ride my bicycle until it's like 65 degrees. So it's like, uh, uh, maybe I can go. Maybe I can go. I think the continuous snowstorms in February took a little bit out of me. So I've, I've been slow to get back out too. Oh, yeah. You guys probably got nailed a lot worse than than we did over here. Well, the last week of January and the first week of February, we had, like, what feels like 150 feet of snow. <laughs> it wasn't. It was just, it was a bunch of, like, six to eight inches, but it's, like, enough. Oh, yeah. One and then it got super cold. I feel like I live on Hoth. It's it's amazing how much 100 miles can make a difference, right? Because you're only, like, 100 miles north from me. But, like, yeah. I remember going up and visiting you, and it's like, God, why is it so cold up here? Yes, it's because it feels like the Arctic. Yeah, and you're also inland. I live right on the water, so we're always right. a little bit warmer. Right. Yeah, it's like why you know back in February I called my mom, you know, and I'm watching the news like there's a monster snowstorm bearing down on New England. I'm like, are you all set for stuff? She's like, it's raining here. I'm like raining? <laughs> Can't be raining. Yeah. She says, yeah, it's raining. It's, it's it's you know it's like forty degrees. I'm like, god damn it. Yeah. I'm sitting out on my deck. So that's it. Yeah. Good, good for you. What are you doing, Jeff? I'm shoveling a hundred feet of snow again. Like we said um, about like only a hundred miles difference. When we used to go out to Ohio every year for those conventions. Now Ohio uh, is on the end of the time zone. Like we're right, right at the beginning of the time zone. We'd be out there like right around the summer solstice, you know. Right. So. We're out there in the, the, the smoking area handing out, hanging out and stuff like that. It's like, ah. And then, like, all of a sudden, you start getting, uh, not tired, but a little tired. You're like, oh, what, what time is it? Because the sun's still, like, up. And you're like, oh, it's like 9.30. It's like, 9.30? How the hell is the sun still up at 9.30? Because, like I said, you're way at the end of the time zone. It sounds like, that's a, when you say that, it sounds like the makings for, like, an ill-conceived science fiction film. Time zone. <laughs> if you go 35 feet in one direction, it's an hour earlier. But that's like the whole hinge of the plot. You just go back. You don't actually go back an hour, but you, you're an hour back on the clock over there. Oh, no. Time's I'm trying to change history, man. Yeah, but all you've done is walk across the parking lot. <laughs> time zone sounds like a 1980s action television series. And you can and you can hear the theme song. Time zone. 
starring Bruce Boxleitner <laughs> as Jake Throb and Marky Post as Angie Squeak. Of course, Marky Post, because she's like in 18 different TV series during the 80s. It's like that whenever we go to Florida, too, because um, the the actual peninsula of, of Florida is all Eastern time zone. There's a little part of the panhandle that's the next time zone over. But, like, if you go to, like, Tampa, they're basically on the edge of the time zone. It's like you're watching the, you know, the, the sunset over the horizon. It's like, oh, Christ, it's almost 10 o'clock. And this is when the giant alligators come out to play. Fucking Florida slash Jurassic Park. Are those sexy manatees there belly flopping around <laughs> the mark. The- hey, we haven't seen a woman in a long time in that one. Look at the leg on that one. All right, before I get all worked up and bothered over here, um, before we start the show proper, I have my award-winning, always very popular uh, trivia question for you. And speaking of award-winning... I feel like you, you pick these specifically to make me look dumber than I really am. I want you to know that. Uh, that's okay, guys. I, I look dumb whenever I'm looking them up. I'm like, oh. It is not very common that an instrumental piece of music makes its way to the top of the charts. We've been, there's been a few shining stars along the way, but what was the best-selling and highest-charting? I mean, you can't get much higher than number one, I guess. But what was the the, the best-selling and highest-charting instrumental song? Highest-charting instrumental song. Yeah, yeah, and we're not talking like so like the classical music charts. At which point, it's anybody's guess. But we're talking like pop music, right? Yeah, it's not funeral like music anything, you'd hear yeah. on the radio, like Casey Kasem, whose birthday happens to be this week, saying like. Today's top number one song is La Gaza Ladra. <laughs> it's a fifth of Beethoven. But yeah, okay. So, uh, all right. At the end of the show, I'll give you my guess. All right. Uh, this is going to be the week beginning April the 26th, and I think it is your turn to start. It is indeed my turn to start. April 26, 1977, a nightclub uh, that still sort of s- defines what a dance nightclub is is or can be opens in New York City, and that is Studio 54, a notoriously decadent uh, nightclub, sort of the beating heart of the disco movement, and uh, a a place both of legend and, in fact, that are amazing to consider for a place that only stayed open for like two years before the IRS (laughs) came and shut it down. That place Um, smelled like cocaine. It did. <laughs> it was pretty much all cocaine, I think, at the end. A couple of movies made about it not too long ago, some documentaries too, but a really interesting place to see like where the sort of zeitgeist of the 1970s was as this first sort of split where Hollywood and really super rich people kind of mingled, and then people who were local based on what they looked like or how they acted could kind of get in too, and, and all of the... Stuff that happened behind closed doors happened behind closed doors on purpose, and this really weird behind closed doors permissible atmosphere that wouldn't come around again for a long time. If I had the you know the 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 time machine fantasy, you know, you play that that game there. If you could take a time machine, yep. that would actually be. If I had three trips to take, that would be one of them. I think that I think that'd be an interesting thing to go. And witness to go back to like oh, 1977, absolutely. 1978, and be inside Studio 54 and just see like you know, John Belushi. I know was a big uh, patron over right. there, and like Tatum O'Neill was in there, and so was her father, and <laughs> and Village People, and Donna Summer was there a bunch of times, and Diana Ross and yeah, Mary sure. Wilson, and sure. like it's amazing. Yeah, it was a who's who of that era for sure, right? All of it full of cocaine. Yeah, and just <laughs> pounds and miles of cocaine, right. 
the the nightclubs in the 1990s, you know, more, you know, my, my era and all that, it smelled like clove cigarettes and patchouli, where Studio and 54, and oh yeah, of course, and B.O. Uh, Studio 54 <laughs> probably just smelled like cocaine, champagne, and, and B.O. B.O., <laughs> and the after effects of like people having sex in the quiet corners of the club must have smelled amazing in there. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and whatever smell gold chains dipped in aqua velva, <laughs> ah, aqua velva right. soaked chest hair, uh, whatever scent that gives off. Yeah. And sweaty naga hide pants. <laughs> yeah. That place just smelled like a mustache, is what it smelled like. Right. Anyway, so kind of a cool place, and, and it set the tone for like dance music and disco music for years and years and it died just as disco died not long after so yeah disco yeah took it down in its wake uh, another thing is because of the loud disco music you couldn't hear the <laughs> of the corduroy pants rubbing up against one another god the 70s were weird they were definitely strange not quite as weird as the 50s Segways are awesome. Uh, April 27th, 1953, your friend and mine, classy Freddie Blassie, coins his trademark phrase, pencil neck geek. I remember watching classy Freddie Blassie the time I was watching wrestling as a kid. Yep. There's a song version of his pencil neck geek. Yes, that's rants. from my, uh, from, yeah, Dr. Dementia used to play it. That I taped on my little radio from the Dr. Demento show mm -hmm. and listen to incessantly and still remember just about all the words too. It's amazing what you find hilarious when you're a kid. <laughs> yes. That was, that was the time where I was playing a lot of Dungeons and Dragons and my friends were into Monty Python's flying circus and sort of avant-garde comedy for 13 year olds, which makes you feel like you're really smart because it's like grown up comedy. Yep. And yet there we were listening to pencil neck geek. Pretty freak, scum suck, and pee head with a lousy physique. He's a one man, no good losing streak. Nothing but a pencil neck geek. Um, uh, classy Freddie Blassie comes from this like classic era of wrestling, of wrestling managers. And uh, he was actually a wrestler before he became a manager. He was what they call in wrestling a heel. You know, wrestling back then isn't like wrestling is now. Back then, it was more like a, a traveling carnival show. But he was so hated. Somebody actually brought a gun to a perform, uh, you know, a show, and he got shot. Freddie Blassie got shot. Somebody shot him. That's how much he was hated in the wrestling world. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's nice that that event has not been repeated with more recent wrestling. No, another one around that same time was the. Uh, the, the grand wrestling wizard who used to wear like a turban and horrible sunglasses. That, that was like 1970s uh, era. Yeah. And then uh, Blassie stu uh, stuck around for a long time. He was, yeah. he was pretty active even into the 80s. And in the 80s, that was the real golden age of managers. If you were a bad guy in wrestling, you had a manager. You know, that, that's how you could tell the good guys from the bad guys at that time because yes. bad guys had managers. There was, I think there was one, I think there was one good guy or face manager, like Oliver Humperdink, I think his name was. <laughs> yeah, I remember him when he, when back at, you know, when I was in high school and WWF was just becoming really popular. Yep. And he, he had made that transition over into, into that organization for, he was there for a while. Yeah. And then, I mean, he was old. 
He was an old dude in, in like, 85, 86, 87. Oh, he was born old, that guy, yeah. Uh, no, he lived uh, He lived a pretty ripe and old age. He died, uh, he was 85 years old. He passed away, wow. yeah, he passed away in 2003, June of 2003. Wow, yep. that's a long run for that guy. Yep. Wow. Yeah, 85 is, uh, that's like double the life expectancy. Of this. I shouldn't <laughs> say it like that, but... <laughs> Uh, re- re- well, I guess I guess it balances out. Yeah. Like, for every for every Freddie Freddie Blassie, there's a Mr. Perfect. Throw yeah, for every Freddie Blassie, there's a there's like a Kurt Henning, a British Bulldog, and you can throw in a Big Boss Man. Right, Big Boss. Yeah, man. The, 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 yeah. It's it's a sad state of affairs that a lot of wrestlers tend to die young. But that's not fun. That's not happy. Good news. Uh, what do you have for April the twenty eighth? Well, I have even more good news. Uh, April 28th, 2019, uh, in a case of, of uh, lowered expectations, American diver Victor Viscovo makes the very deepest dive in the history of humankind to the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Oh, wow. 10,927 meters, or 35,849 feet, which is like Everest plus 1,000 feet or 20,000 feet or something. Not only to see just what's on the bottom, but... Everybody who's been to the bottom of the Marianas Trench has found animals and has found amazing new things to look at. He found, see if you can guess, Bill. Did he find a fish? Oh, uh, no, he found, think? He, he found a sexy manatee. He did not find a sexy manatee. He, in fact, found plastic garbage. He found a plastic bag. <laughs> he found litter. He's the Geraldo Rivera of uh, deep right, sea diving, of, yeah. Of, Exactly. And it's it's both funny and terrible at the same time. It's terrible because the fact that some dude's plastic shopping bag is at the bottom of the Mariana Trench shows that the impact that human-generated garbage has on the environment, too. Imagine going all that way, and something that got there before you is like a discarded Shaw's bag. <laughs> it just, uh, just got to suck. I don't even know if he saw any other fish, and probably people will never know, because all they say is like, oh, man. He found garbage, oh, and then conversation's over. You know? I could just, I could just hear like Homer Simpson's voice, like, "Oh, I wanted a sexy manatee. <laughs> I wanted a sexy. I thought I was gonna see a giant megalodon shark." <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure he's down to like, "Well, maybe it's a jellyfish." I don't know. It says Shaw's on it. <laughs> I don't know. Is it? Maybe it's a. Maybe it's like a, a bug-eyed squid. Well, those are clearly handles. Yeah, that's just gotta suck. Yep. This, We're terrible, terrible creatures for letting our world, treating our world that way. Yeah, this, that, like, that huge floating, uh, like, it's out in the Pacific Ocean. It's like a, an island of trash. And it's like, yeah, it's the, huge, the, the too. Pacific Gyre, yeah. Like, how big is that thing? It's like the size of Rhode Island, I think they said, right? Yeah, it's it's, it's bigger than that, even. And it's, it's a giant swirl of plastic refuse. It's humongous. A lot of it is microplastic, so it's not like you're out there and you can just, it's wall-to-wall bags and bottles and stuff. Right. A lot of it is plastic that's been broken down by, you know, banging against other plastic. Yep. So it's it's microscopic and it's being found in fish and shrimp and it gets into the food chain and it sinks to the bottom and gets eaten as marine snow and it messes up the whole ecosystem. It sucks. Yeah. So think about that when you're flicking your cigarette butts out the window, you assholes. <laughs> so... That wraps up our eco-friendly section of the show. All jokes in uh, in Twibley are recycled from. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so April the 29th, 1899. Uh, the Belgian electric car. Now, my Belgium is, is awful. I, I, I'm, I've never been one to pronounce uh, 
anything you know above waffles. I'm not going to attempt to say the the Belgian translation, but in English, okay. in English, it translates the car was called the Never Satisfied. It tops out at 105 kilometers per hour, so it is the first vehicle to break the 100 kilometer per hour mark. Uh, that trip. It's amazing for 1899. Wow, an electric car too. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I wonder how long the extension cord was. Did, 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 <laughs> did it say? Does it have like a big spool on the back of it? It's like those uh, those planes that you had when you were a kid that were like on, on a string, like. Oh, there you go. Yes. Put those yes, things around. Yes, yes. Yeah, so it just went around in a circle, like like some sort of like old school <laughs> carnival the, ride. It's got the stick up to the top, like uh, to a grid on the top, like the Dodgem cars at the the amusement park. Oh, oh yeah, sparking like, like mad. <laughs> or like a merry-go-round, you just come around, you wave at your parents, hi, at sixty-five miles an hour. <laughs> uh, it, I'm sure it was like get shoo, me shoo, off shoo. <laughs> Uh, it, a- it actually had two direct drive, 25 kilowatt motors for about a total of like 66 horsepower. And it was driven by a Belgian driver named Camille. Oh, my God. This guy's name. Yeah. Camille Genetzi. It looks like his name is. And this wow. thing looks ridiculous. It looks like like, it, like if you remember you're a kid and you would draw cars and that's what they, this is what it would look like. It looks like a, a child's drawing of a car. It does. It looks like the way that the driver has to sit sort of on it. Yeah. On it, not quite in it. It's it, it sort of looks like uh, like Slim Pickens at the end of uh, Doctor Strangelove, like riding the bomb, like sitting on the bomb. Yeah, or like Crazy. like a, a villain from a 1980s Hanna Barbera cartoon is what it kind of yeah. looks like. Whenever we worked at the haunted house last year, my boss had made like a go kart out of a coffin, and that's yeah. exactly what this thing looks like. Instead of a coffin, it's more like um, almost like a, a torpedo for a submarine is what it looks like. <laughs> I don't know what battery technology was like in 1899, but I wonder how long it could run at with both of those 25,000 25, watts Yeah. per direct drive motor running those two rear wheels. Like, how long could it go? And know? how fast did it get there? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and it, uh, why didn't it just flip over and just kill the driver? Yeah. You know, because it has so much torque. It like, takes off with a wheelie. Like the Tesla cars, they go from, you know, zero to 60 pretty fast. This thing, I don't know. Cool. Now that they've made it, it's like, all right, we got to make this electric car and it can go 65 miles an hour. And how far can it make it on one charge? Uh, roughly three quarters of a mile, JC. <laughs> exactly. And then it's going to sit on a charger for approximately seven hours. Yep. Uh, Then we got to throw the batteries away because there's a recharger. Recharger is old. That's new technology. That's right. That's right. Then we have to build a power plant, fill it with coal, (laughs) toke the boilers. (laughs) Uh, Let's get on to April the 30th. April the 30th, 1989. Siskel and Ebert filmed their 500 TV movie review show. And they had two. Yeah, they started off on PBS on a show called Sneak Previews, which is where I first heard about Star Wars. Uh Uh-huh. They transitioned over to the syndicated show in like, I don't know, around 1980 or so and and stayed together as a pair doing at the movies until Gene Siskel, he died, he had brain cancer, he died in 1999 and then then a series of additional hosts joined up with uh, Roger Ebert and continued the show until he he died of uh, complications from cancer in 2013. Oh wow, Siskel died young, he was only 53 years old. That was such a cultural like phenomenon. I didn't watch it very often, 
But like you couldn't really get away from it. You know, everybody talked about it. To this day, we still use the saying, you know, two thumbs up, which came from right. them because they would give the movies either thumbs up or thumbs down. That's right. That was their, that was their rating right. system, a kind of a, a binary rating system. But we still talk yeah. about it like... And we still use it today. I mean, that's why you have that rating system on Netflix and yeah. and other streaming services too. I think Hulu and Hulu has the same thumbs up, thumbs down, and, and even Amazon Prime. So right. you can thank those guys for that. And I know Ebert used to put a book out every year that I would save my money to get, which was the Roger Ebert's Home Movie Companion, where he wrote some of the funniest movie reviews ever, especially if he really hated a movie. It was it was always fun to watch, to watch them or read his thoughts. You know what movie they both really hated, and like they tore it apart, they ripped it up and down. They could not say enough bad things about it. And if you ask me, it is one of the best horror movies of that era available. Is the original Friday the Thirteenth from nineteen eighty? Like seriously, I'm, I'm surprised they didn't take up a second language just to learn more <laughs> adjectives to like say how much they hated this movie. Yeah, they 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 did that with a, when they had real vitriol for something. It was always fun to uh, to to watch them, and they and they definitely didn't seem to have a, a great love of of slasher films. And and you know what, I, I I do love slasher films, but I also I love slasher films with the same like eye that I love novelty music. You know, do I think they're fantastic cinematic pieces that explore man's inhumanity to man? No, but movies like you know Sleepaway Camp. Four or whatever, I don't know. There's just something endearing about them. But th- that original Friday the 13th, I show that to people that think horror movies are hokey. And it's like, no, that movie's got suspense. That movie's got it all. I'm going to give it two thumbs up. May the 1st, 1931. Uh, the Empire State Building opens in New York City. Now, it was guaranteed to be gorilla-free... Uh, but only for the first two years. Uh, yeah, they should have bought the extended no gorillas warranty yeah. that place, but that'll teach them. Yep. They had a bad gorilla problem shortly thereafter. It definitely was. It was a it was a big gorilla problem. That's what it was. Yes. It wasn't just a gorilla problem. It was a big gorilla problem. A gorilla with a plucky spirit, I must say. Penchant for knocking down airplanes when when provoked. Yeah, the Empire State Building. I think that was was that the tallest building in the United States for a while. At the time, yes, it was. At the time, it, but it didn't hold it for long, right? I think the Chrysler Building opened not long, too long after that. Right. And that was not even close. There's, there's yeah. one, I think, in the Middle East somewhere that's just, like, ridiculous. Like, you look at it, it's like, how is that even staying up? Yeah, when you get off the elevator, you're in, you're in the International Space Station. I know which building <laughs> that is, yeah. You ever been to the Empire? I've never been up in it, but I've been to the Empire State Building. I, I, I walked in the lobby. It was a real long waiting period to get up there, and I was like, eh, I'm not really that interested. Um, no, I've never been in it. I, I've only been to New York City one time, and I was only there for like 11 hours. So, All right. And of that, I spent much of it asleep. Whenever people come to me for advice, and let me tell you something. If you ever come for me to me for advice, don't bother. Because either one, it's going to be total shit. Or two, you're not going to listen to me. But one one story I always tell people is uh, when I went to New York City for the first time, I knew the intersection. I looked it up before I left. I, uh, the intersection for the Empire State Building. Where it is now, I don't remember. It's like 34th and 6th or something like that, whatever it is. So I'm standing on the corner of 34th and 6th, we'll say, and I'm looking around. I'm looking for the Empire State Building. I mean, the top of the Empire State Building has a very... Uh, you know, distinct shape to it. 
and I couldn't see it, right? Yep. So this dude's walking by. I was like, excuse me, sir, can you tell me where the Empire State Building is? He goes, yeah, right here. Like I was literally standing at the base <laughs> of the Empire State Building. Um, and that's a story that I tell people whenever they come to me for advice is like, you can't really see what you're looking for until you can stand back far enough to see it. Right now, you got, if you're in the middle of whatever problem you're in the middle of, you got your nose pressed up against the Empire State Building and you can't really see it. Take a few steps back, take a look, and you'll see what the problem is. Just so, be careful where you step because yeah. you may get run over by a taxi. Oh, yeah, and, and, uh, absolutely. Or stepped you, on by a gorilla. You might have a gorilla land on you. That's right. It's, it's beauty that killed this beast. <laughs> it wasn't the fall. Yeah, but beauty just landed on my head. <laughs> well, I, the, the sidewalk helped. <laughs> but, yep. All right, and let's wrap up the week. May the 2nd, what do we have? May 2nd, 2008. Uh, the first film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, unless they bring back Blade, is released. Iron Man, directed by John Favreau, starring Robert Downey Jr. in ultimately what would become a late career-defining performance and role for him as Tony yep. Stark. I remember whenever they first announced that, they said, and Robert Downey Jr. is going to be playing Tony Stark. I instantly just started laughing because Tony Stark in the comic books is an alcoholic. Right. Robert Downey Jr., had his problems, lots yes. of them. I was like, oh my God, that is such a great typecasting to have Robert Downey Jr. to play Tony Stark. Yep, it was able to show, I think, too, that if you plan out your your film expectations like for a series of films and you build the first one really well, that you can you can make a greater and greater series of films that all hold together well. And Iron Man really did that. It, was the, it took superhero stuff very seriously. And still managed to be fun, uh, and I think that was that was its success—the success that has eluded DC so far. What I really liked about that first Iron Man movie is they modernized the mythos of Iron Man, uh, so they changed you know quite a bit, but they were still true to the original story. Like yeah. in the original story, cave in Vietnam and builds a, arc reactor. Yeah, and he, he gets his, he gets shot in the chest and the guy fixes his heart and he yep. builds an Iron Man suit and escapes and then he comes right. back and he kills all the Vietnamese guys. Yeah, so in the movie, it's not Vietnam, obviously, it's more of the Afghanistan war. What was really kind of cool about it and I got really excited until they screwed the pooch with Iron Man 3, but the name of the terrorist organization was the 10 Rings. Now, the uh, in the comic books, the Mandarin is like that's his Joker. That's his Green Goblin. That's Iron Man's biggest villain, the Mandarin. And he has 10 rings that he wears, and each ring has a different power. So they kind of like modernized it because that's kind of ridiculous. That's not, not, not something you can really tell in a, in a movie. Not, not in the universe they were building anyway. It was like a little wink and a nod right there, yeah. The Iron Monger, it was, it was a couple of different like crossover comic book, actual comic book stories from Iron Man in that first movie. And I think you're the one who pointed out to me in the third act, whenever Ironmonger and Iron Man are having their fight, there is a, a, a frame that you could pause at that it is like inch for inch right out of the comic. There are a bunch of frames that are kind of like that and that where you can see they, they took their inspiration directly from like John Romita's art. Yep. Uh, let's get on to the celebrity birthdays. All right. April the 26th. 
1900. By a guy by the name of Charles Richter. Any uh, guesses on what he's uh, famous for? He sounds like an earth-shattering type of scientist guy. <laughs> he sure is. Uh, Charles Richter is the guy who came up with the Richter scale, which is how we measure the ferocity of earthquakes. Didn't we just have one here in New England not too many months back? Yeah, I, don't, I think it was about... Oh, jeez. Probably about eight months ago now. Eight eight to ten months. It was last summer. How much... Did you feel it up in up in New Hampshire at all? Nope. Oh, see, I felt it quite a bit because I was literally like six miles from the epicenter. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was, it was 100 miles or so from me, so I didn't... Yeah. I had to I had to read about it. I yeah. couldn't experience it. There were some people up in New Hampshire that said that they felt something, but I felt it a lot. <laughs> I was... Uh, I, I yeah, I was actually sitting right where I'm sitting now. I was in my office, and I was editing a, a Twibbly episode. I live on a busy street, and I have a kind of pothole out in front of my house. Whenever the big box trucks there, the 18-wheelers go by, how often do they go by? So often you don't even notice. It, it feels it, like an earthquake. It feels like an earthquake. <laughs> it's so, 4.5 on the Richter scale. Yeah. Well, this one wasn't a truck, let me tell you. I'm sitting here ed- uh, editing the podcast, and I feel a truck go by. And then it's literally shaking the whole house, and it's going a lot longer than a truck. It's almost like a train is going by. Yeah. And then it got real, like, I don't want to say violent because, I mean, nothing fell off my shelves or anything like that. But it got way more serious than a truck. Then it stopped as soon as it started. So I ran outside to see if there was, a you know, an 18-wheeler tipped over on my street, and there was nothing except for a woman walking her dog who was wondering why this guy has no shirt on in his pajamas and his, his hair is flying around everywhere. <laughs> so then I go back inside and I go downstairs to see if anything, like my furnace exploded or a beam fell over or something. It's like, no. And then I went to the computer and I was like, Earthquake, New Bedford. And yeah, sure enough, we had a uh, minor standard by, uh, you know, like by San Francisco standards, I guess. But it was exciting. <laughs> Oh, wow. That's that's definitely more profound than my experience with it, which was literally seeing the news. And I was like, oh, I hope everybody in New Bedford's okay. Yeah. And, and you know, started doing my, like, hey, on Facebook, are you guys all okay? And people like, for what? <laughs> Couldn't have been that bad then. Yeah. So. Meanwhile, your buddy Bill's over here. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's in his basement. I'm not leaving this door frame. <laughs> my my yeah. fingernails still haven't grown back completely. <laughs> all right. Next up. Uh, April 27th, 1951. Ace Freely, the guitarist from Kiss and Freely's Comet and current purveyor of covered records, uh, is born in the Bronx, New York. We talk a lot about Kiss on this show because we both, you know, grew up liking Kiss a lot. Yep. And uh, Ace Freely was one of those guys that was always around in the music that I listened to as a kid. Generally interesting guy, as weird as he is, and he's, he isn't any less weird now. Mm-hmm. He just does a lot more interviews where, because he's old, he says things that <laughs> the rest of Kiss are like, Ugh. <laughs> that's not exactly the way it went down, but um, good guitar player, too. Yeah, oh, uh, excellent, excellent guitar player. If, if I've read all four of their autobiographies. His is, right. ca- his is called No Regrets, and I guess he's working on a second one called No Regrets, too. But the thing that really... St- more No Regrets. Yeah, yeah more No Regrets. <laughs> uh, the thing that really stood out for me in that book is at the very end, he talks about when he was going to rehab, right? And they asked him, they're like, what, what's your drug of choice? And he was like, ah, Xanax. They're like, well, how much are you taking per day? And he said he took like 20 
one milligram tablets of Xanax every day. And they're like, okay, how much do you really take? He's like, I told you, I take 20 milligrams a day. They're like, all right, well, we'll believe you and we'll write that down. But I'm just letting you know that that is three times what it would take to kill a person. (laughs) He was doing it every day. Twibley um, does not endorse taking that amount of, or any amount of drugs. We also, we also do not endorse bringing Ace Freely to a reunion tour, apparently, um, based on based on interviews with him and other KISS members. Anyway, so yes, uh, Ace Freely, 1951, April 27th. All right, uh, next up, uh, April the 28th, 1930, a beautiful woman by the name of Carolyn Jones, who you would know as Morticia Adams from the Adams Family television series. She didn't do a lot after that. Like, did she? She was in films before she was on that show. Well, she died young too. She died in 1983 at the age of 53. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. If you ever see, well, even in the Morticia getup, she's a beautiful yeah. woman. But if you ever see her like in her street clothes kind of a deal or whatever, she's just stunning. She's a stunningly beautiful woman. Actually, uh, she's got a pretty long um, resume. She was. Uh, she was in the original House of Wax with Vincent Price, uh, you know, one of the first full-length uh, 3D movies that we talked about. Uh, the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, not the one with the Donald Sutherland making the pointy face that we all love so much. No, 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 the one with the, uh, yeah, I know the one, the, you're next at the end. Yeah, yeah, and, uh... I cannot remember that guy's name. All right, next up. Oh, brace yourselves. April 29th, 1948, character actor kind of best known for being in... F-grade exploitation films, a guy named Reb Brown. He's also the second person to appear live action as Captain America in a very short-lived pair of crappy TV movies that were meant to capitalize on the Spider-Man TV show where he played Steve Rogers slash Captain America and wore a motorcycle helmet. It was not good. My big, uh, I I went looking up Reb Brown's uh, resume to see what he was in, and I was just looking at everything. I'm like, nope, nope, nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. His first movie was a movie called <laughs> um, Yeah, yes, where he gets turned into a snake with Dirk Benedict. Yeah, <laughs> yep. That was a made-for-TV horror. Scared the ever-loving blue-eyed <laughs> out of me when I was like eight years old. Yeah, it was, a, it was like an NBC uh, Friday Night at the Movies. So- he was in a sequel called Hit. <laughs> I only know him because he was in Howling 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf. Yes, the... Worst of all the Howling films. Uh, Unless you like Howling films that are impossible to follow, ridiculously plotted and terribly acted. In that case, he's got you covered. And he was in a couple of things that weren't terrible. He was uh, a bit player in the film Uncommon Valor with Gene Hackman, which was a decent sort of Vietnam film. And that's really about all that he was good in. Next up, April the 30th, 1923, sticking with my horror TV show motif. We have Al Lewis, uh, who played Grandpa on The Munsters. Oh, yeah. Al Lewis is an interesting dude. Did TV and did a couple of movies. He was the, the hanging judge in Used Cars, one of my favorite comedies of the 70s. Oh, yeah. Really, really well known for being Grandpa Munster on The Munsters. Reprised the role in, like, The Munsters movie and some other stuff. And then became a fixture in, like, New York politics and the restaurant scene. He owned a comedy club. When he was first getting started, he was a union organizer. He was a socialist and used to get people back into their houses if they'd been evicted for stuff. And he was like a real, like, hard-hitting, you know, sort of street-fighting guy. Oh, wow. 
Really interesting dude. Yeah, his biography is really, 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 really varied and strange. And definitely contributes to this sort of no-nonsense attitude that he brought to all of his characters. He did, like, almost like Elvira, kind of like a horror, horror movie hosting. Like a syndicated horror movie host for a little while, too. Right. He was in a movie in 1971 that gave birth to one of the standards in late 80s and early 90s alternative music. A movie called They Might Be Giants. Uh-huh. Yeah. Ran for mayor of New York as a Green Party candidate like in 1998 and stuff when he was super old and, and up to his neck in a restaurant and stuff. So that guy's an interesting dude. Really interesting guy. He was also in the original Death Wish, but he was like like a doorman. So it's like as soon as he goes by, you're like, was that grandpa? And I don't know. <laughs> it might have been. All right. Next up we have. All right. May 1st, 1893. Charles Zimmy. Known as the human fish, a man whose legs were de- his legs were decapitated. <laughs> almost said decapitated. Yes, who were he was delegged by a trolley car at nine years old and learned to get around without legs. Yeah, it's it's, it's tough t- tough to have happen. In, in 1937, he swam from Albany, New York, to New York City down the Hudson River, 150 miles of swimming. Jesus. Yeah, because <laughs> he had no legs to hold him down which is a really weird way to say that but he he was buoyant enough that he could sleep while floating on the river so he was able to swim 150 miles partly because he was much more buoyant than a person who would try would try to do that with legs yeah, he swam 150 miles but like maybe 80 miles 85 miles of that was actually swimming the rest was just like napping and he actually he did get out of the water at the pier that he had planned to get out of in Harlem except he floated past it at first and went a mile down and then had to be towed back by a rowboat so that he could get out at the pier that he had said that he would he would get out from. And then he was immediately whisked away to the hospital for, for evaluation to make sure that he didn't have hypothermia or... My God, you remember whenever you were a kid and you would stay in the pool and your, your fingers would get all pruny and stuff like that? His whole body must have looked like... Oh, I'm sure. He must have looked like Belial from Basket <laughs> Case. All right. And wrapping up the birthdays... May the 2nd, 1972, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Probably, you can't even say probably, absolutely the most successful person to come out of wrestling. Whatever Hulk Hogan was the biggest thing in wrestling, they tried sticking him in movies. That just, like, didn't happen. He wasn't good at it. Well, they put put him in wrestling movies, and that was the problem. Yeah, well, I mean, he also did, like, Three Ninjas and... Santa Claus muscles and stuff like that. But The Rock, and don't get me wrong, The Rock doesn't exactly have a great resume either. That that guy will take any role that they hand him. All right? I mean, he he did a movie where he played the Tooth Fairy. All right? But The Rock is one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood. Very, you know, well sought after. You can make fun of his movies all you want, but the guy... He'll reach your hate mail poolside. All I'm going to say is, like, he can spoof himself really well. He was fantastic in the first five minutes of the other guys yep. playing, like, the super cop in New York City that jumps off the building to his death. Right. Aim for the bushes. I, I really liked him in, like, goofy stuff like Rampage, which I thought was great. Yep. Um, it's Kaiju. Among other stuff. But he's, I don't, I've, I've never been not entertained when I've seen him in a film. And nowadays, wrestling, uh, you could say, you can laugh at me when I say it like this, is very scripted. It's like, well, it's always been scripted. No, that's not what I mean. Uh, back in the earlier days and maybe up until probably like maybe five to ten years ago, the promos that they would cut whenever the wrestlers would be talking, 
That was like all improvised. Nowadays, it's scripted and you don't deviate from the script. But whenever you think he was allowed to improvise, The Rock was one of the best. The Rock cut amazing promos. Super funny. Even when he was trying to be a bad guy, he was still being funny about it, you know? One of the funniest things he used to do is he actually used to, and you can't really find the clips anymore because it's copywritten music, but he used to bring a guitar with him and sing songs, and he would do like... He would do parodies of famous songs, but change the lyrics around to make it about the, the other wrestlers and stuff like that. And I don't understand why they can't get by the copywriting on that, because that, that falls under the uh, the fair use and sat satire lines and stuff. Another guy, nowadays, they have somebody that comes out with a guitar and plays songs too. His name is Elias, but he's not funny like uh, The Rock was. He's actually, whenever he plays, it's actually... The worst song ever. <laughs> All right, so this week's worst song ever is going to have a subcategory called Who the Hell Gave You a Microphone? Right. This was not a number one song, and it's not actually even particular to this date in history. It just sucks. <laughs> Agreed. My nomination this week for the worst song ever is the song Heartbeat by a uh, known rock star and television <laughs> and, and uh, movie personality, Don Johnson. No relation uh, yeah. to our birthday boy, Dwayne Johnson. Uh, this came out right at the height of popular television actors and actresses putting out atrocious albums. Started oh, right, with yeah. Eddie Murphy, remember? Oh, yeah, with, Eddie Murphy, right, yep. yep right, with Party, Party All, the time. All the Time. That record then, is terrible. And Eddie Murphy's very funny, but that record is awful. The name of Eddie Murphy's album is How Could It Be? And that is an outstanding question. <laughs> but but yeah, that's, a, that's another album for another time. Uh, we're talking about our friend Don Johnson. Yes. Uh, so Don Johnson was Sonny Crockett, uh, your friend and mine from the hit television uh, TV Miami show. Vice. Miami Vice. yeah. Which had uh, a number one single for its theme song, right? That was the, there was the Miami Vice soundtrack that was yes. huge, huge, huge. Yes, uh, but that, I know what you're getting at, and that is not the answer to this week's question. Go ahead. Nice shot, but you missed. <laughs> what I mean, though, is like, that's the sort of terrible encouragement that people like Don Johnson get. Right. To like, you know, if uh, listening to a guy play an electric keyboard for three minutes and think about your TV show makes us money, what if you were singing? Let's get together as many fantastically famous and talented musicians as we possibly can to try and create a career for you that you should never have. The liner notes of this album is yeah, like better than the We Are The Those World are... cast. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Tom Petty's on here. He wrote a song. Bob Seger wrote a song. Like, there's just a, a ton of people. Dickie, uh, for musicians, there's Dickie Betts from the Allman Brothers. Like, Dweezil Zappa's on this Dweezil one. Dweezil Zappa. Stephen right. Ray Vaughan. Like, we're, we're, there's all this, like, high-powered guitar. Let's get back to the song in question. Well, right. let's, yes. let's, play, let's play this clip here. Johnson, my friend, you have no funk at all. 
He is. He is whiter than the Pillsbury Doughboy. Yep. Uh, this song was co-written by Eric Katz and Wendy Waldman. Yep. Uh, their their songwriters. I looked up there. You know, that's what they do for a living. Uh, Eric Katz wrote a bunch of stuff for Kenny Rogers. Not, yeah. Not a surprise. He seems to come up a lot. Yeah, uh, um, most of this stuff is like all adult contemporary. Wendy Wallman, she co-wrote Save the Best for Last for Vanessa Williams, uh, you know, former, uh, unfortunately disgraced Miss America. Right. And that's an, it, it seems like that's their caveat. It's like, hey, do you have any business working in the music industry? Well, not really. Well, here's a song. So Don Johnson released this album, also named Heartbeat. This song is actually a cover Yep, the original was by Helen Reddy, a woman who sounds a lot more famous than she actually is. Well, I don't know. She was really, really big in the early, like the first half of the 1970s, and then kind of dropped off after that. But she had a bunch of hit songs, and then she kind of went back to Australia and stopped being famous. Her version came out three years earlier in 1983. It's a little more soulful than this, but then again, so is a a metronome and a glass of milk. (laughs) So Don Johnson, a couple of years later, uh, put out a follow-up album called Let It Roll. And, and I have a hundred jokes, none of them are worth making, but that's a pretty let it roll right into the garbage can. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty good one. That, that, was worth, that was a worth telling one. That's a good one. In 1998, there was a reissue of the Don Johnson Heartbeat album. It came with a bonus disc, which included half of the Let It Roll album. <laughs> hey, if you like Don Johnson a lot, you'll like a lot of Don Johnson. Yep. Here's another three and a half songs. Yeah. When you want an album really bad, we've got a really bad album. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then, to put an exclamation point at the end of this sentence, and when I say sentence, I mean like jail sentence, they put out another album called The Essential Don Johnson. <laughs> the guy's got two albums, and one of them has <laughs> half of the second album on it. <laughs> So basically what they did was they took half of the first album off to make a better album. Go through any of the tracks on the album itself and and you realize that I'm not sure if it was meant to, but it makes Richard Marks and Brian Adams sound rugged. <laughs> rugged and like like Danzig level dark. I, I like this Don Johnson, but I like something with more balls like Paul Carrick or something. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know what love is. That song is like full of funk. Yeah. Ugh. What's more hilarious than the song itself is the music video that accompanied it. <laughs> yeah, it totally does suck. It's it's you should go watch it. It's yeah. great. For for somebody that has made a living as a professional actor, he sure can't act like a rock star. The the guy looks about as home holding a microphone as I do holding a hammer. You know, and I'm not a handy person. It's the time in MTV's history where videos had fallen out of the the horse galloping through the steam idiom time period. And into the music videos have to have some sort of deeper meaning that tell a story. Oh, yeah. Dumbass song is uh, the video is about like he's like a war photographer or something. And. It alternates between that and him playing on stage with Dweezil Zappa. Yeah, yeah, it looks like it's a soundtrack for a movie or something, but I don't think it is. Yeah, it's a trailer to like, oh God, three minutes of my life is wasted. (laughs) The motion picture. Yep. My favorite move that he makes in the video is like, he's holding the microphone in like one hand and the other hand, he's got his elbow dugged into like his hip and he's got like the fist kind of like pumping like, yeah. 
get ready for this yep. next line because I'm going to mean it. I'm bringing it home, Daddy. <laughs> I'm bringing it home. I'm bringing it all the way yep. home. Not only am I bringing it home, I'm bringing it home with friends. You'll notice that whenever he does that move, Dweezil Zappa is never in frame. He's just out of frame and he's he's gagging <laughs> at the thought of, of, of how badly he's selling the rock star angle. And this is a kid who watched his father. Yeah. Yeah. Frank Zappa. Exactly. This this guy's got a pedigree a mile and a half long, and it's like, what am I doing here? Why am I here? Right. What what book did I forget to read in high school? <laughs> I think this is what's called like putting in your time. <laughs> the racking up the credits on garbage records like this. It's not I love the guy, but like Uh before we wrap up the show, getting back to yes. my trivia question. My trivia question for you was what instrumental was the highest charting, which which can't go any further than number one, but the best-selling instrumental single of all time? Best-selling instrumental single of all time. If I had a Ouija board here and I was able to go channel my father, uh, who played Jive Bunny and the Master Mixers 147,928 million times during my childhood, I would pick that okay, song. You, But I'm pretty sure that it's you, not that shall not go near a Ouija board because you are obviously possessed by the devil to bring up Jive Bunny and the Mix Masters. Master oh, whatever Masters. the hell. I'm not, oh my God. I remember, when, <laughs> I remember when that was popular. All the freaking dingalings I work with. Oh, that's just so good. Oh, God. My dad loved that record oh. to pieces. So, no, um, it, it, it wasn't something like, I'm, I'm going to go like, was it something like Hooked on Classics? Which was, a, I remember that song, that record charted. Right. Yeah, stars on forty. Yeah, with a stars on forty five. There was a lot of stuff like that that was popular at the time. But no, uh, the answer is, and I actually own this album. And do I listen to it sometimes? Miko with his star, his disco Star Wars theme slash uh, Cantina band song. I had that single, and I had the album version of his Wizard of Oz. I, just I have the CD of the of the Miko uh, Star Wars and other galactic funk, which is great. Yep. Uh, interest, uh, interesting piece of trivia about that Mako, Mako um, Star Wars song is it got nominated for a Grammy, but it did not win the Grammy because somebody else won the Grammy. And do you know who won the yeah. Grammy? I'm going to go out on a limb and say it was probably John Williams. It was right. John there Williams. Was a- <laughs> but yeah, John Williams won the Grammy that, uh, that year for the Star Wars uh, theme, beating out Mako, which was a cover of the Star Wars theme. Right. Yes. Well, there you go. All right. But that is, well, hopefully in the 90s, Glenn Miller won the Grammy rather than Jive Bunny Mixmaster. Christ. Christ on a cracker. All right. Uh, But that's going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here next week, guys. Oh, I don't know. Why don't you say goodnight, Jeff? Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. Special thanks to James Costa for our theme music. Find us or message us on Facebook and Instagram at Twibly, or T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Subscribe if you haven't already, and tell your friends. They probably need a cool podcast to listen to as well. And if you don't like this week's episode, there'll be one next week, and it'll probably be better. <laughs>